You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, Northside, I am grateful to, we can just be together today. It's spring break week, so it's great to see you uh, here, that you're joining with us on spring break week, and also grateful because this was spring forward, you know, Sunday. You lost an hour of sleep, and if you've been wondering why you're just feeling a little more irritated around people today, we, we all know why. So we're going to be gracious with one another. In fact, that's why some of you are here. You just couldn't get your act together by nine, so you're here at 1030 today. I know how it works. And uh, so just grateful, grateful we get to join together and especially grateful because of what we get to talk about today, about how we can change a world one expression of love at a time. And, uh, you know, I read here a couple of years ago about Caleb. Uh, Caleb was two years old when his parents divorced. They each announced that they were gay. Caleb's mother fell in love with a woman at work. Caleb's father fell in love with a man at work. And so Caleb grew up in, in separate homes. And, and honestly, a lot of his years uh, spent time, his, his mom was very much into activism at the time as well. And so he would go to a lot of gay pride parades, things like this. He was nine years old. Of course, he just thought they were incredibly fun and lots of people gathering together and just having fun. And that was his picture of that until one day they were marching at a pride parade in Kansas City with his mom and her partner, Vera. And he saw a man throw a cup of urine on Vera. And he was stunned by it, shocked by it. And he said to his mom, why would that man do that? And her mother said, because he's a Christian and Christians hate people. So that's kind of how he grew up. Uh, he just grew up believing that, 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 that those are Christians that do that and they hate people. And that's how he was introduced to Christianity. And unfortunately, it wasn't the only ex- negative interaction or experience he had growing up. So that, that was his perception of, of angry, self-righteous Christians. And so when he was 16 years old and a couple of buddies invited him to a Bible study, he decided he would go. First of all, because uh, he despised Christians and he didn't believe in the Bible and he figured he would go and just prove it all wrong. And so he kind of went with those intentions. So sure enough, he showed up started going to the Bible study. He assumed everybody was like the Christians uh, that he thought he knew in the past. Leading the Bible study was Joe Weiss. And I know Joe, in fact, we did some youth ministry stuff together years ago. And so some of our youth here at our church would actually know Joe and we've done some things together. And Joe was facilitating that Bible study. And Caleb went with his ill intentions to disrupt the Bible study, which he did. He was mean-spirited. He tried to disprove everything that was being said. He did everything he could to pick a fight But Joe was always gracious to Caleb. And the guys that had invited Caleb, they were always kind to Caleb, even when he was being unkind to them. And this just wasn't what he was perceiving Christians to be like. In fact, he thought after a while, they must not know, like, they they must not know the way Christians really are. And they're kind of misrepresenting them with all this, you know, accepting me and being kind to me and loving kind of stuff like that. He just figured they were getting it wrong. But he continued to try to do that until finally he decided he was going to dig deeper himself. So he started reading in the New Testament and he was reading in the book of John and he got to John chapter 8. And John chapter 8 changed Caleb's life. 
Because the interaction that he saw in John 8 wasn't anything like he thought Jesus was like or Christians were like or his followers were like. And he read John 8 where people surround a woman to condemn her. And Jesus shows grace to her, kindness to her, and sends her on her way. And this just isn't what he was perceiving at all. And through that encounter and through this Bible study, Caleb became a believer. He became a Christian. And of course, when he became a Christian, his parents, who all these years felt like they had been wounded by Christians, were appalled by it. His mother disowned him. His father actually asked Caleb to move out. He went to live with Joe for a period of time, who was leading the Bible study that he was attending. And then you fast forward years later. Caleb goes to Bible college, becomes a minister, He's been a minister in in several churches and then many years later was able to baptize his mom and his dad who had put their faith in Jesus. What was the difference? The difference was for Caleb and for his parents. They went from what it looks like when you face condemnation to what happens when you face compassion. What it looks like when you have people who are screaming and angry at you and throwing urine on you to people who are gracious and kind and loving to you. The Jesus that they encountered was the one who does not let our sins define us, but provides a path out of them and into his freedom. What they encountered was the real Jesus. And it all started when some believers showed one expression of love at a time, changing the world one person at a time, just like Jesus did. And so what I want to do today is I want us to open our Bibles, let's open our devices to John chapter 8, and let's read what is this account that changed Caleb's life? What was it that gave him a completely different perspective than what he thought about Christians and about Jesus? And so let's stand to our feet as we do this, because we're going to read this together. And um, I'm almost saying this to you prematurely, because before we read the scripture, I've got to give a little context. So maybe your legs needed to stretch anyway. So let me... I'm going to give a couple things really quick. I got too excited. So let me point something out that you're going to look at. When you open your Bible right now, or even look on your device, what you're going to see is something in parentheses before John chapter 8, and it's going to say, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. It's going to say the earliest manuscripts don't have this. So, So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that the Bible is so reliable, so accurate, with an overwhelming number of manuscripts that are dated with so many manuscripts that are even dated so close to when the original author wrote it, that we can have complete confidence that what we have in our hands is the Word of God, and that this particular section of text that we're going to read right now, we don't have in the earliest manuscripts prior to the 6th century. And so the, the translators are saying what we're about to read likely was not in John's original gospel that he wrote. But it's there because somewhere early in the journey, someone was putting this story in there. They, they added the story in. But the reason that they would have done this is, is just because it is not in the original text does not mean that this story is not historical or that it, it did not happen. In fact, our, our understanding of this is that it, it likely did happen. For example, the Apostle John, the Apostle John who wrote this text, his disciple Papias is quoted by Eusebius, the father of church history, who was living in the 3rd century, so in the 200s, as saying that Papias expounded another story about a woman who was accused before the Lord of many sins, which the gospel, according to the Hebrews, contains. And they're referring to this story 
They're talking about this story that had been passed down orally. And so John, to his disciples, in which Papias would have listened to John, and he's now passing this story along as well. So the oral tradition suggests that this is a historical reality. And that wouldn't surprise me at all, because John in his gospel, in chapter 21, even went on to say, there are many other things that Jesus said and did. And I suppose that there's not enough books in the world to contain everything that he did. But these are written so that you might believe. So even John would admit, there's many things that Jesus did. Well, this apparently is one of those. One of those encounters, one of those things that Jesus did that was not in John's original gospel, most likely that because of the, the bibliographical evidence we have from the manuscripts, we believe was probably added later, but likely happened. So we're going to read it right here. It is John eight, two through 11 at dawn. He, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Lord, I pray that as we hear these words, that, Lord, we would respond and act and obey and do what you would have us to do in light of them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We don't know a lot about this woman. We know she was married. In the oral Jewish tradition, a woman who was married that was caught in adultery was to be stoned. They had other actions for those who were single. But as a married woman, at some point, In her marriage, along her way, things went horribly wrong. Kyle Ottoman, in his book, One at a Time, that we've used for our small group series on this, said, somewhere along the way, she met another man. He noticed her. He listened to her. It was the, maybe at first it was quite innocent. But one day they crossed a line and then crossed another line and then another line until she ended up in bed with him. Maybe this was the first time. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe she had told herself she wouldn't do it again. Maybe she felt guilt and shame and she knew God knew. And Regardless, on this day they're caught. And the religious leaders grab her and pull her out and she is paraded before them with shame and humiliation and fear. She knows they want to take her life. The intention is to kill her, to punish her. She's exposed in every way. And then she heard one of the men speak. 
And we have it recorded in the Gospel of John. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Her life hangs in the balance, in his words, in his hands. At least it appears to her that way. The text says they were using this as a trap for Jesus. We know it was a trap for him. And not only was it a trap for Jesus, it may even been a setup from the beginning because we're asking the question, where's the man? If, if, if she's caught in the act of adultery, where's he at? Because if you're actually following the law of Moses, it says that the man and the woman should be brought before them. He's conspicuously absent. But here she is. She's caught in this trap. And it's a trap for Jesus because if Jesus condemns the woman, if he condemns a woman to stoning following Mosaic law, then he's going to be breaking the Roman law, which basically stated that the Jews did not have the authority to judge and to execute when they're in Roman jurisdiction. So that would have gone against the law of the Romans. If Jesus let her go and did not do this, and he'd be guilty of contradicting the law of Moses, which in case that he would not be God, or in this case, he wouldn't be a prophet or of God. This is how they're coming at it. He's going to be trapped. What's he going to do? And Jesus does what anyone would do when they're faced with this situation. He starts writing in the dirt. I don't know what he was writing. I would love to know what he was writing. And we speculate what it could be. Some people thought it was maybe the names of guys who had similar sins. Maybe he was writing scripture references to the scriptures that reveal in Deuteronomy 19 and Exodus 23 that if you're going to come as a witness against someone else that deserves punishment, you have to come without malicious intent, without any deceit. Well, they couldn't come that way. And if they brought this punishment, even though they were being deceitful and malicious, then they would have to face the same fate that she faced. And so they couldn't come at it honestly. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but he's scribbling in the dirt and he knows their motives are not pure and they're not seeking justice and they have no concern for this woman whatsoever. They're publicly humiliating her because they have a bigger fish to catch. They're really after Jesus. So they're just using her to get to him. And her life is hanging in the balance in this moment. And they know they're caught in the act. And this woman, with all of the fear that she's experiencing in this moment, is listening to what's happening around her. And so Jesus says, You who are without sin, you cast the first stone. And all these people surrounding, holding these rocks in their hands, ready to carry out this punishment, have to evaluate. Jesus doesn't mean to imply that they have to be sinless. That would eliminate the legal demise, (laughs) the demise of all legal proceedings. And so he's not saying they have to be sinless. They just have to come at it with the right motives and a pure heart according to the law of God, of which they were not. They have to be honest witnesses without condemning themselves. And they couldn't do it, and so they walk away. They're caught dead in their tracks. And Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus shows grace. 
that he speaks truth. The order matters. In John 1.14, it says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. That order matters. This may be the first time this woman's really experienced grace in her life. I don't know what she had going on in her life, but Jesus, though he could have, did not play the role of judge in this moment. He didn't make it about judgment. Now, he made a judgment about her behavior, but he didn't condemn her. He called her behavior sin what it was, but he said, don't do it anymore. Go. He did speak truth. But what would it look like if we followed his example? What would it look like if if we operated like Jesus did when he came the first time and he did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world? What would it look like if we treated the world like that? I mean, he's the ultimate judge. He will one day judge the world and he will judge it fairly while giving grace to those who come to him in faith and belief and repentance and surrendering their lives to his lordship and calling on his name. But until that day, let's show grace first then truth, while holding firmly to both. We don't let go of either one. It's grace and truth. But what if we embraced and welcomed and showed expressions of God's kindness and love to people who are far from God? And what if we did that as graciously and as boldly as Jesus did, and as a group of teenagers did in Columbia, Missouri, that would actually change someone's life? What would happen if we did that, if we loved them that way? I mean, I think the question is, should we? embrace sinners in our church? Should we embrace sinners in our church? Absolutely. Yes, we should. Does that mean we have to approve of their lifestyle? No, it does not mean we have to approve of what someone does. There's a difference between accepting and welcoming someone and loving them and approving of what they do. When we accept and love people like Jesus did, will it cause some people to talk and to wonder where we stand Yes, it will, because it did for Jesus, but it didn't stop him, so it shouldn't stop us from extending grace and love to people. Jesus was called a friend of sinners and tax collectors. People looked down their nose at how he seemed to accept and welcome, the words are welcome, people who are far from God. Yes, sometimes people will look at us and say, it looks like you're showing too much grace in some moments. But if that's the case, then I guess we'll look like Jesus, because that's what he did. Should we continue to speak the truth even when it goes against the consensus of our society, what our world thinks? Yes, we should speak the truth, but not without love, not without it being seasoned with salt. Because Jesus changed this world one expression of love at a time, and we must do it as well. We must show love to others. We show love to others, not for what they have done, because that's their works, but because of of who they are being God's work. They are people loved by God. These are people created by God. We show love to others, not for what they have done, their works, but for who they are, his works, his work. Jesus loved us like that. He loved us in this way, not for what we've done, but for who we were. In John three sixteen through 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He so loved the world, who they were as his creation, as his people that he gave his one and only son. Romans chapter five, eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet still sinners. 
Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still going in our own way, hearts rebelling and turning away from God, going headlong into our sin because that's what we preferred instead of God. When we were going our own way, dead in our sins, Jesus died for us out of his love for us. His compassion, his grace is so great. And if, if your gospel is morality, if it's morality, you're going to have a hard time loving and accepting people because you'll be accepting them based on their works. But if the gospel is Jesus, his death and resurrection, his death to pay the price for our sins, you'll have no problem loving and accepting people who are engaged in sin because you will love them for who they are, God's creation, the work of his hands, not because of what they've done. It's about the gospel, not about, it's the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of morality. It's like in Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies. And then he went on to say, in doing so, you'll imitate your heavenly father. That when you love even your enemies, you are doing what God would do. Our God is not going to ask you to do something that he would not do himself. And he's loved us. And what this means is we need to drop the rocks. We need to drop the rocks. We've been throwing rocks with our glances, our words, our insinuations. We need to drop the rocks. So our hands are open to love people and to receive people and help them to know Jesus. We need to drop the rocks. And when that woman was caught in adultery and she was brought before Jesus and publicly humiliated and they had the rocks in their hands ready to stone her, In that moment, she was just waiting to hear and to feel those rocks hitting flesh. That was the sound that she was expecting in that moment, but that's not what happened. Instead, when Jesus said what he said and wrote what he wrote and asked the question that he asked, everybody walked away. And what she heard was not the sound of rocks hitting flesh. It was just one sound after another of rocks hitting the ground. And then when it was quiet, they walked away. And when that happened, there was only one standing there, only one who was sinless, only one who had every right to pick up a rock. There was only one there who was capable and able to judge correctly. It was Jesus. And Jesus asked her, are they not? Is there no one here to condemn you? No one. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now go. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus used his position of sinlessness, not to condemn, but to offer grace. He offered her grace. I would love to know what happened to this woman. I, I don't know. I mean, you're kind of left with this question, like, did she, did she leave her life of sin? Did she get reconciled to her family or to her husband? Did she, you know, what happened? We don't know. I pray that she left her, her sins and she reconciled and 
especially made that decision to follow Jesus and be obedient to his words and, and to his commands. I mean, that's what Jesus is calling us to do too, is to leave sin and to turn, repent, and, and to listen to his words and to obey him and to follow him. I pray that she did it because he gave her grace. He showed her compassion. He showed her kindness and love. And I pray that that's what happened for her. When we look at this story, you just see that Jesus' approach is completely opposite of the religious leader's approach. They're just two completely different approaches. One is grace and one is condemnation. One just leaned into grace and forgiveness and kindness and love for the person. The other one just led into condemnation and judgmental attitudes. And it's such a difference. And here's the question. Has condemning a person ever changed a person? Like, I mean, have you ever met someone who said, I was a certain way, man. I was going down this path. I mean, I was heading there. I was going in the wrong way. But then I met this hate-filled, judgmental person who made me feel condemned. And now my life has changed. You probably haven't heard a story like that, most likely. I haven't. Instead, usually they're the complete opposite. It's, it's why Romans 2.4 says... That it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's His kindness and grace that leads us to repentance. That you have value and you have worth and you are loved in spite of what you've done. And your value and your worth to God, that does not change because of what you've done. Pastor Matt Chandler tells about a time when he was a freshman in Bible college. And he became friends. She attended the, the, the school with him, with this young single mom. And she had this incredibly rough past. And uh, she was not a believer at the time. She was not yet a Christian. But Matt had become friends with her. And, and he and his buddies began to share their faith with her. Her name was Kim. And they invited her to a Christian concert. And Matt tells a story that after the band played, uh, this this. Uh, preacher got up on stage and, and he announced that he was going to talk about sex. And so he held up this beautiful rose and he held it up. He said, this rose is perfect. This rose, this rose smells wonderful. It's beautiful. And he goes, this rose, everyone needs to see this rose and touch this rose and smell this rose. And he goes, so I'm, I'm going to hand it off here and you just pass it around. Let everybody see this beautiful rose. And so he hands the rose to someone and they began passing it around. And they went from person to person. And the preacher continued to speak in an angry tone about sexual sin and promiscuity. And at the end of his sermon, he invited the person. Where's the rose? Whoever has the rose, come up here. Bring it up here. And they brought it up. And, of course, this rose was broken. And there were petals missing. And, and it had been abused. And the preacher said, as he held up this rose, now who wants a rose like this? It's been passed around. Everybody's touched it. It's no longer a pure rose. Who would want a rose like this? Nobody wants a rose like this as he tossed it aside. A week or two later, Matt said he hadn't seen Kim at school for about a week and a half, two weeks. And so he was trying to get in touch with her. And he eventually got a hold of her mom. And her mom told him she'd been in this tragic car accident, horrific accident. She was at the hospital and still there. So Matt went to see her. He went to the hospital. He said she, he talked to her for a few minutes. And, but in the middle of the conversation, just I mean, she just blurted this out. She said, Matt, 
Do you think I'm a dirty rose? Matt said his heart sank. Because in that moment, he just realized in that moment, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel did not come through that night. Because Jesus wants that rose and he values that rose. And he can, he can take something that's broken and make it beautiful again. And that Jesus has compassion for people. And Matt just saw a woman in front of him who in that moment felt defined by her sin. And he knew she wasn't the worst thing she'd ever done. She wasn't worthless because of what she had done. Her worth was based on God's love for her. And Matt was able to communicate that to her, just like Jesus communicated it to a woman in John chapter 8. She was not defined by her sin. If she was, it would make sin the ultimate power and authority in our lives. But instead, she was defined by his love. And all that became a reality for this woman. All of that became a reality for Kim because Jesus showed her a compassion instead of condemnation. We're told in John 13, 34, to love one another just as Jesus loved us. Love like he's loved. Live like, he's li- like he lived. Kindness, humble service, forgiveness, grace. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ. God forgave you. In other words, we must live and love the way Jesus lived and loved. We've got to live in love like Jesus. And if we do, then we're going to show people love, not for the works they've done, but for the work they are. A work of God who he's created them to be. We've got to live like Jesus. We've got to love like Jesus. And if we would, perhaps there would be people in this world who have this perception of Christians. They're the ones that hate people. And instead, see us as people who love people. From Jesus, we learn that there is a difference between acceptance and agreement. And this is so important, especially in our culture and our world today. Jesus would welcome and accept people and eat with them and befriend them. But that did not mean that Jesus agreed with their behavior, sinful choices, their lifestyle, whatever it was. But he still loved them. And we see this over and over again. Caleb Kaltenbach writes in his book, Caleb, I told you about earlier, has written two books, Messy Grace and Messy Truth. And in his book, Messy Truth, he says, Jesus' followers must love people no matter what. That's acceptance. But they don't have to agree with their choices, affirm their theology, or approve of their convictions. That's agreement. We struggle with that in our culture. I mean, my acceptance of a person is based on the fact that God created them and died for them and loves them and that everyone is created by God and for God and Jesus died for them. My belief should never cause me to question someone's value or worth or to love them or to accept them or to be kind to them or to welcome them. Nevertheless, our society is increasingly plagued by these false dichotomies that get created that if you don't agree with someone, then you must hate them. You must despise them. That's not what Jesus did. This us versus them mentality, it's not helpful. And we've got to recognize the difference between them. And so oftentimes in our culture, if you are affirming of someone, then you must love them. And if you're non-affirming, then you must despise or hate them. 
That shows up in our culture in every way that you can possibly imagine. Especially in our culture today when it comes to LGBTQ people and, and the way they feel. And sometimes it's, it's because of narratives of a culture. Sometimes it's because of religious extremists that have come out like what I described to you earlier. It's led to this thought that if I am submitting to God's will for my life and his word and I'm being obedient to what Jesus wants for me in my life in the area of my sexuality and you are not being obedient to what God has laid out in his word in your area of expression of sexuality that if I believe I'm going to submit to God here because this is what God says and so I'm not going to agree with that behavior or with that lifestyle for the world or for that person to say, well, then you don't love me. That is a false dichotomy. That, that, that's not necessarily true. It could be true if I'm a Pharisee, but it may not be true if in fact I love and value this person, even though I've submitted my life to God's will and God's word. This is something we've got to get past. I'm I may not be affirming a certain lifestyle or sexual activity that's not in alignment with God's word, and yet I can still love you. I can show grace to you. This is what Jesus did. Surely I can do that too. Surely I can do what he did, say what he said, act in the way that he acts. Our world makes us nearly impossible with its false dichotomies, but Jesus is calling us to love each other. Not to agree with every person's choices. In fact, there's another story I want to share with you. It's, it's kind of shifting gears a little bit, but um, kind of from the area that we see in Jesus in this story. But I was reading a newsletter, and this came from Crosslines, a local ministry uh, here in Springfield. And uh, kind of the, the topic of this was just, it was loving people hard to love. And uh, Jamie Trussell, she wrote this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you just about what this looks like when we just love people with one expression of love at a time and how it can change our world. And uh, she wrote, Did you know it isn't always easy to love the folks who come to our doors for help? Frequently we meet them on their worst day in the midst of a real personal crisis. And in those circumstances, I often just want to do what I can as quickly as I can and move on. Fortunately, our team on the front lines learned a long time ago that sometimes the people most in need of love ask for it in the most challenging to love ways. And serving those folks in a way that brings real help and hope, it takes time. She said, I'm thinking of a lady that I'll call Rhonda. So by the way, she's calling her Rhonda. So if you're Rhonda and you're here today, it was not you. It's okay. At least I hope it was not you. If it was, you need to go ask for forgiveness. But anyway, I'll keep reading the story. Rhonda had a habit of calling... And chewing out whomever answered the phones at cross lines. Rhonda had a long list of grievances against the world. Why everything and everyone has ever let her down and her calls weren't really an opportunity for conversation as much as they were a tirade. After weeks of this, our team was at a breaking point. As CEO, I had been briefed on Rhonda's extreme behavior, but nothing prepared me for the day she called my direct line. Within seconds of answering, my stomach was tied in knots. I tried to make sense of what I was hearing, but couldn't imagine what the caller hoped to accomplish via a very passionate litany. In a flash of recognition, I interrupted and asked, is this Rhonda? There was a pause, followed by a tentative yes, 
And I said, I've heard of you. She crackled with delight. My heart sinking with the certainty that there was nothing anyone could do to help this angry person. The thought entered my mind. Pray with her. I wanted off that phone as quickly as possible. But the thought persisted. Pray with her. Finally, I said, Rhonda, may I pray for you? To my shock, she said, yes. Immediately, she said, yes. In a voice barely above a whisper, I prayed my heart out. I don't know what I said for how long, but when I was done, this woman who had terrorized our team seemed completely different. Fiery passion replaced with friendly peace. We visited a little while longer. Then she thanked me and then hung up. Well, I'm a fervent believer in the power of prayer. I don't think this was anything miraculous. Well, maybe it was. I do think God was showing me what a difference even a tiny gesture can make. He reminded me that praying for someone is different than praying with them. It's just so much easier to distance ourselves from hurting hearts. Every day I see cross-line volunteers showing love to people who could be hard to love. I think of these dozens of examples of compassion and kindness like stones cast in a pond making ripples that reach eternity. Our neighbor Rhonda is a tough case. But at the end of the day, I know she's a hurting person who once needs to be seen. Certainly her circumstances didn't change in the scant minutes we spent together on the phone. How many other people have I ignored dismissed or avoided because they were difficult or disagreeable. And so she asked the question, how will I respond the next time God places one of them in my path? And how will you? My prayer is that it would be with one expression of love at a time. How do we change this world? One expression of love at a time. How do we make disciples one expression of love at a time? And when you encounter someone who's difficult and disruptive and determined to sin, perhaps you could shift your emotion from anger to sadness. Sadness for whatever's going on in their heart, which will help you have compassion for the person and to pray for them and to pray with them. What better thing to do than to pray together, to pray for each other, to pray with each other, to show compassion and love for one another, to instead of becoming angry and speaking with harsh words and a condemning spirit, what would happen if we showed love like Jesus showed love and we lived like Jesus lived? We did what Jesus did. We need to show love. Not because of what people have done, not for their works, but because they are God's work created in him. We need to drop our rocks through our words and our glances and our our insinuations so we can have hands that are open and free to love people and help them know Jesus. We need God's power, his Holy Spirit, to help us to love difficult people in difficult situations so that we can live in love like Jesus lived and loved. And we need to replace anger with sadness over the hurt that we see, even over our own sin, so we can help others experience the love of Jesus. So they too will be inspired to turn from their sins and, and to walk in obedience to Jesus. This is our prayer. And it's my prayer for you. 
In fact, right now, we want to have a time where we just, we do what we just heard about, where we just pray for each other and we pray with each other. In fact, if you would just stand to your feet for a moment, I, I want you to know that we have some people here today that have already been praying for you. And I know that throughout the morning, they've already been praying with some of you. But they are here right now praying for you, but they also want to be available to pray with you. And so we got some people around the room. They'll be down here towards the front of the stage on the sides here and at the side doors on the sides of the room in the middle of the room. And they're just here because they want to pray with you today. Ephesians 6 would tell us that we should pray for all the saints. We should come and we should pray for each other and we should pray with each other. This is a time for you right now. Maybe God has already placed someone on your heart or on your mind that's difficult, that's hard, hard to love. Hard to have patience for, hard to have compassion for. And you just want to pray for them today. Ask God's strength for you. Pray for them as well. That God would bring a spiritual awakening in their life. Maybe you've got something you're just battling and you're struggling with. It could be a sickness. It could be a disease. It could be discouragement. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. It could be frustration of some kind. There's people that want to pray with you today. And so we just want this time, even as we sing, to be a moment of prayer. I'm going to be stepping out to Decision Point right here through these side doors. If you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, perhaps you want to place membership in this church. Maybe you got something you just want to talk about or pour over or pray about today. I'd love to do that at Decision Point. But I just want to invite all of you in this room right now. This is a moment, even as we're singing, to go to one of our prayer partners on the sides of the room here at the front and in the middle. And just go pray with them. And let them pray over you and let God speak into your heart. And so, Lord, we just want to be open right now to your Holy Spirit as you invite us into a state and a time of prayer. Lord, we're desperate for you. We need you. We are nothing apart from you. We need your healing. We need your forgiveness. We need your life. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us live and be who you've called us to be. And as we pray for each other now, we know that these prayers are being heard as they're being ushered up as a burning incense to the heavens. And Lord, we bring these to you now, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.